Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the gift of your word. Your word that brings life and light to us. Just as you have fed us spiritually uh, by the table that you set before us, the table of communion, the bread and the cup, Father, we ask now that the word would feed us, feed our very souls. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help, I I ask that you would help each of us to be attentive uh, to the message that you have for us. Father, for those among us who are grieving, I pray that you would meet us in our grief. For those among us who are anxious, I pray that you would bring your calming presence. Father, for those uh, who are just merely distracted, I pray, Father, that you would quiet our hearts and quiet our minds, that we might be able to look at at you as our Savior. Father, wherever we are at, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, minds uh, to take in and hearts to believe and that our lives might be transformed. Father, we want to glorify Jesus Christ, and so I ask that you would uh, allow your work to be done in me and uh, through this word and in each of us this morning as uh, we look at your word. Father, do this for the glory of your Son and for our joy in him. In his name we pray, amen. Well, this morning we begin a new series of sermons, um, uh, and it's, uh, the first one is uh, Psalm 23, as we have read multiple times already this morning, a psalm that I'm sure that all of us, or, or most of us, are pretty familiar with. And uh, having just finished 1 Samuel 1, uh, I thought it would be helpful for us to take a few weeks to consider some of the psalms of David, and particularly the ones that are connected uh, to the events of David's life in 1 Samuel. David is often the, the person that, that we think of when we consider the Psalms, and I think it's for good reason, because as I looked, over, uh, maybe about half of the, the 150 Psalms that we find in the book of Psalms were written by David. And we know from the accounts of 1 Samuel that David was skillful in playing the lyre. He was a musician, And in 2 Samuel 23, uh, we read that David was referred to as the sweet psalmist of Israel. So even though David was a warrior, he was also a poet and a songwriter. And so as we look at at the passage, we see that the very first words in our our psalm identified as as a psalm of David. So uh, most likely this is one that David wrote Uh, In fact, I'm just going to assume that David wrote this psalm uh, because it has so much of who he is in it. But that title that uh, is also called a superscript is found in the original Hebrew text. It's not just part of your study Bible, uh, but it's found in the original Hebrew. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, it often gives us a bit more information about the historical connection of the psalm. As we open up, as we look at the psalms over the next week, we need to to remember that the Psalms are filled with rich imagery and metaphors and other poetic devices that are used to convey rich meaning with just a few words. And that's exactly what we find here in our Psalm that we're looking at today. And David, the imagery that David uses in this Psalm, this familiar Psalm, is one of the Lord being a divine shepherd. 
And as, uh, was, as Norm read for us, we see in Scripture that there was a, a tradition of God referring to himself as the shepherd of his people and that the people are his sheep. But as uh, Norm also read, that we know that David is also speaking from firsthand experience. When we first encounter David, he's summoned from the field in 1 Samuel 16. The Lord has sent uh, Samuel to anoint a new king from the sons of Jesse. And so the, the, the boys are brought out and they're brought before Samuel and he goes through each of them, the oldest, down the line, and yet there doesn't seem to be a king. Is there any more? Well, there's David, but he's out keeping the sheep. So in verse 10, we read uh, that after these Seven, uh, after Jesse's made the seven sons pass before him, Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And he said, well, there remains the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And so Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for he will, we will, I will not sit down until he comes. And then he, David, uh, was sent for and brought in. And it says that David was ruddy, had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. And so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And so even the text that we, we find here before us is one that was uh, anointed, uh, was from the anointed king. It was one uh, that was inspired by the Spirit of the Lord had rushed upon David, it says, from that day forward. And so as we start this, uh, this tour of a few psalms, about five weeks worth, the reason that I wanted to bring, uh, begin with the psalm, this psalm, Psalm 23, is because I believe it gives us an overall picture of how our loving God, as a shepherd, cares for us, his sheep. And the truths that we'll find in this psalm are carried throughout the rest of the psalms that David writes. It speaks of God's abundant provision, his protective presence, and his sacrificial blessing that he pours out on believers. It also speaks how he brings peace in the midst of of present realities. And so that's our main point for this morning, is that our loving shepherd cares for his sheep by bringing peace. And first we will look at through his abundant provision. So David begins the psalm once again by saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And literally, uh, you could translate it, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. So as a young child, I thought he was a shepherd that David didn't want. The Lord is my shepherd, but I shall not want him. No, it means that there is no lack. There's nothing that he lacks. Like a good shepherd, the Lord provides everything that David needs. And that really is the role of a shepherd, right? A good shepherd intimately knows each and every one of his sheep. He knows what they need, and he works to provide for those needs. Sheep uh, are not something that you really want to be called. They're a defenseless, really not very intelligent animal. Um, And they need guidance. They need protection. They need protection from predators, but also they need protection from each other. They need protection from even themselves. Their short-sighted appetites and destructive tendencies will be their undoing if left alone. In other words, sheep are a lot like us. They're a lot like you and me. In a book uh, written by a gentleman named Philip Keller uh, called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, 
he, as a shepherd himself, uh, says this. He says, it is no accident that God has chosen to call us sheep. The behavior of sheep and human beings is very similar in many ways. Our mass mind or our uh, mob instincts, our fears and our timidity, our stubbornness and our stupidity, our perverse habits are all parallels of profound importance. So a shepherd who is uh, uncaring, uh, unattentive, lazy, or even cruel is not really going to want to put up with all that uh, sheep are going to hand out to him. He's not going to be willing to patiently uh, put up with the weaknesses of the sheep. He's certainly not going to be motivated to lovingly be go, go beyond the minimum. But here David paints the Lord as the perfect shepherd. Keller writes that Psalm 23 might as well be called David's hymn of praise to divine diligence. For the entire poem goes on to recount the manner in which the good shepherd spares no pains for the welfare of his sheep. And so let's take a look through the passage. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. I think the first thing that's helpful for us to know, we may have an image in our mind with those words, uh, an image of a beautiful mountain scene full of green grass. But the first thing that we need to keep in mind is that David is not writing uh, in the midst of northern Europe where the mountains uh, are are green and the fields are plentiful. So this is not the sound of music. If that's the image in your mind, this isn't it. This is ancient Israel uh, in which... So much was a sun-baked desert. So the image of a green pasture and still waters was not really to be found everywhere. It was not plentiful. A shepherd may have to cultivate an area in order to pasture it. He might have to take a a small stream and dam it up to create water, uh, a place where the the sheep can both uh, drink as well as uh, can really grow enough green for the sheep to eat. He might have to go far distances to scout out areas for the best grazing for his flock. But all of this implies that the shepherd is intentionally planning. He's putting in a lot of forethought because he knows what his sheep need and he's working to be able to provide that. And if sheep were simply left to themselves or if they were left under an unattentive shepherd, um, they would probably overgraze an area. If they found a green field, they would just eat it down until nothing was left. And then the field would be barren and unable to grow anything else. They might drink from contaminated pools and pick up things like parasites, become sick. They might eat poisonous plants, which apparently there's plentiful plants that will make a sheep sick or perhaps even die. And so when we think about uh, that he makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside the still waters, not only is there intentionality in the shepherd providing these things, what's even more significant is that the good shepherd makes it possible for the sheep to lie down. Once again, uh, we're helped by Philip Keller as he writes, it's almost impossible for sheep to be made to lie down unless four requirements are met. Owing to their timidity, they refuse to lie down unless they are free of all fear. Because of their social behavior within a flock, sheep will not lie down unless they're free from friction uh, with others of their kind. 
If they're tormented by flies or parasites, sheep will not lie down. Only when they are free of these pests can they relax. And lastly, sheep will not lie down as long as they feel in need of finding food. They must be free from hunger. And so the implication is that lying down means that the sheep are free from fear, from friction with others, free from pests and free from hunger. And so the shepherd cares for them physically, uh, medically, socially, and emotionally. He cares for everything. And so to say that the Lord is my shepherd, I I want nothing, I lack nothing, is an incredible statement. I think in our world today, we're given countless uh, supposed shepherds or masters that we might follow after instead of the Lord. Ones that would would promise to us peace. They would say that that we would be better off with them, each one in their own way uh, offering to bring us happiness or fulfillment. And yet, even if you were to save up all your money in hopes of buying your security, even if you were to brush up on the latest podcast to impress your friends and win arguments, even if you were to endlessly scroll through social media looking to be amused, none of these shepherds ultimately satisfy. Instead, we're, we're left, left restless, running about, looking for more and more and more. It is only our good shepherd who is gracious enough to provide all that we need, who knows our weakness, and provides enough that we might lay down angry pastors. Verse 3 then says that he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. So the fact that our shepherd restores us, it means that he brings us back to himself. That's what the restoration means. It's the same image that uh, Jesus conveys in Luke 15 when he tells the, parallel, uh, the parable of the lost sheep from Luke uh, chapter 15, starting with verse 4. He said, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after one, the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my lost sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven with one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So we have this image of a shepherd who goes after his sheep. And I would say to us this morning, brothers and sisters, if you know in your heart you have wandered away from God, if you know uh, that you have left him behind, if, if he's not the shepherd that you are pursuing with your actions and your heart, I want you to know that he pursues you. He pursues you, and if you are his, he will indeed restore you. Right? And the reason is because his commitment to you is not based on your obedience. His commitment to you is tied to something far greater. And that's his own reputation, the sake of his own name. And so if you are pursuing an unrighteous path away from the Lord, I urge you to repent and to follow after the good shepherd. Right? Even if the way seems harmless, right? it might be more like a poisonous weed right? where its effects might take a little while for the consequences to catch up with you, but it may be fatal. God alone is the good shepherd who abundantly cares for us in every way. And so he is the one that we should follow after. 
He's the only one who brings that kind of peace that allows us to to lie down contentedly. So our shepherd, loving shepherd cares for his sheep by bringing peace through first abundant provision, but then secondarily through his protective presence. And that's what we find then starting in verse 4. And really verse 4 represents kind of a shift uh, in the psalm because at this point the psalmist shows us the reality of his surroundings. Right? If, if in the first three verses we pictured this uh, pastoral scene of serenity, the camera pulls back and we see it's not a serene place. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. The picture that, is, uh, that he's painting here is that of a, a deep ravine with, with rocky sides, perhaps twisting as you climb higher up. And these would, uh, in Israel would typically be carved out during the rushing waters of the spring. But they were often dry uh, for the rest of the year. And they were dark and menacing places. It was a place of, of very real danger. Right? Storm clouds, right? If, they, if it started to rain, all the water from uh, the mesas would then fill up in these cracks and create flash floods. Just a very short amount of time. So the storm clouds would, would uh, make the dry path into a rushing river and, and sweep the, the sheep down the rocky valley. Also, there was danger against predators, from predators, right, who were able to stay up on the higher paths and, and look down at the, the helpless sheep. And robbers could watch unseen until it was probably too late. And so it was a place of real danger. And it's a place also of the reality that we live in today. Right? Do you notice that he says, even though I walk, even though I currently walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what David is describing is reality, this side of heaven. Right? Because ever since the fall, ever since sin first entered into the world, our lives are under the shadow of death, of sin, sickness, suffering, pain, destruction. So in a very real way, you and I live in the valley of the shadow of death. And that sounds harsh, but I think it really reflects the reality that we live in. Right? There's, there's always the threat around us. It sounds harsh, but I think it also gives us hope. Right? Because uh, the incredible hope comes because the peace that is promised in the first few verses is not simply a fairy tale but it's something that God brings to us in our very lives. And he brings it through his presence, right? He says, even though I walk through this valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And so it's the presence of the shepherd that drives away fear. And the reason is because the shepherd, right, can be the one who looks out for any signs of danger, right? He's watching the clouds and he knows if the flash flood is coming or, or he can hear the sounds of prowling animals, he will be the one who looks out for danger. And he's also the one who can protect against the threat of dangers, like wild animals. Right? Think about David. He said what he, he killed lions and bears. Right? Shepherding is not this like, very passive, peaceful thing. This is, like, this is fighting wild animals. This is a dangerous occupation. But also, I think the, the reason for the peace is because 
The shepherd knows the purpose for bringing his sheep into the valley. Right? Even though the sheep may be completely unaware of why they're entering into this dark valley, the shepherd has a purpose. Right? He may be leading the sheep into a cave that he knows about where there's clean water to drink, or, or maybe this is the path that leads to richer pasture. They trust the shepherd. They know the shepherd, and so therefore they can trust him even as they come into a place of real danger. The shepherd's presence drives away their fear, and and his tools, what he has in his hands, they also bring comfort to him. It says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And these are the tools of a shepherd. The rod was a, a kind of club that was Uh, carried by the shepherd. It was an extension of his right arm. And he would use it to strike against enemies and predators. And the shepherd's staff, typically what we think of as shepherds, it was crooked on one end. And he would use this to guide sheep and to extend his reach to oftentimes bring them closer. So if, if a sheep got stuck in a ravine, Right, the shepherd could hook the staff around the sheep's body and bring it back to safety. He could reach out and bring the sheep closer to himself. As Christians, we're confronted by the very presence of the Lord, knowing that he is always with us. Right? And in fact, that is the presence that Jesus gave to his disciples when he gave them the Great Commission. He said, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we should be comforted by the presence of the Lord in our lives. But we should also be comforted by the tools of the shepherd. Right? Because in our lives, there are real dangers all around us. Things that want to threaten our faith. There are threats on every side. But instead of responding in fear, whether running about frantically or anxiously hiding We can be at peace knowing that our loving shepherd is there with his rod as an extension of his strong arm to protect us against enemies and his staff to comfort us, to bring us what I would think almost a sense of freedom. So in other words, we can follow after the Lord. We can follow his leadership without fear because we know that he will keep us on track. Imagine if it was all up to you. You're a helpless sheep, and and you need to go from point A to point B, and you've got to go through this dark valley, but you're on your own. You should be terrified at that point against all of the threats that we've mentioned, but, but the Lord is indeed with us. He's leading. He's guiding. We don't ever have to be afraid that somehow it is our faith that keeps us in Christ. And I, I know even in my own life, I can find myself paralyzed with fear of whether it's doing something wrong or saying something wrong. But here is the comfort of the shepherd, knowing that he carries both a rod and a staff, which really ought to lead us to be able uh, to not have to be paralyzed in fear, a fear that would lead us to not do anything at all or maybe that we would never try anything new. I remember hearing a story um, about a woman who had criticized D.L. Moody's ministry. And and D.L. Moody was a 19th century evangelist. You may have heard of Moody Church down in Chicago. was named after him. And she said to him, "Uh, I don't like the way that you reach people with the gospel. I don't like your methods. 
And Moody replied to her. He said, I agree with you. I don't like the way I do it either. Tell me, how would you do it? And she replied, well, I don't do it. To which Moody responded, well, I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. And I think the lesson that we see here uh, is that Moody was able to go forward doing his ministry knowing that it wasn't perfect because he knew that his Savior was leading him and correcting him as he went. And as a church, I think it is a good reminder for us to know that it's okay for us to pursue ministry without worry, even if we don't get everything right, to try new things. Right? I, I don't mean blatantly uh, pursuing sin. I don't mean that. But it's a comfort to know that our shepherd's correcting staff is there to lead us and to correct us when we do make mistakes. Not if we make mistakes, but when we make mistakes. And so we're able to not be paralyzed by fear, but maybe try some things new, try some things that are different. I think sometimes we can be guilty of getting the Lord's rod and his staff confused. Right? We're afraid that if, if we make even the slightest mistake, we're going to get whacked by the Lord. But instead, we need to be reminded that his rod is for his enemies and his staff is there as a comfort to lead and guide us. So I would encourage us to, as a church, that we should boldly pursue our loving shepherd, knowing that even like a little toddler at the Grand Canyon, right, that God will scoop us up before we fall over the edge so we can proceed without anxiety. That we, might get, we might do something wrong, that we might not get everything right. So our shepherd is with us, Right? And even in the dangers, in the midst of the dangers of the world around us, he protects us, he guides us, he makes us lie down in greed pasture and beside still water. He cares for us uh, by bringing us peace through his provision, through his presence, and the third point is then through his sacrificial blessing. At verse 5, we find yet another shift in the psalm. And so once again, consider everything that the Lord has done up to this point. Because he has intimate knowledge of the sheep, he has provided for all of their needs and brought them peace. Right? He makes them lie down. Uh, he, leads, um, he leads them. It says, uh, I'll just use David's words. He makes me lie down. He uh, leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. He's with me and he brings comfort to me. Everything has been done by the shepherd. The shepherd gives his very life for the sheep. But as I said before, they're, they're not intelligent. They're not noble beasts. They're not particularly clean animals. Right? A, a sheep that has been in the field a long time stinks. And these stupid animals are impulsive and they're prone to wander. They're defenseless. They're prone to fear. They tend to make the same mistakes over and over. And yet the shepherd, what does he do? He shows incredible humility in not only caring for these animals, but, but showing them love. And now, David says, he gives them a place at the table. Look at verse 5. He says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Who is it that prepares the feast? It's the Lord. The Lord prepares the feast. It's a feast of such great abundance that his very cup overflows. Right? It, it can't contain all that the good shepherd has to give to him. 
And the Lord anoints his head with oil. It's a a symbol of blessing and honor, just as David was anointed by Samuel when he was set aside to be the king of God's people. And just know that anointing the head with oil, uh, that was done as an act to an honored guest at a banquet, not simply to sheep in in the field. And so many commentators talk about that, starting with verse 5, the whole scene shifts, right? Where outside, you know, the previous verses were out in the field, and now it seems that they're inside at this festival, or I'm sorry, at this feast, this table. And I began to think about this. What, what, What would this be like, right? And so, say you love your dog. Say you love your dog a lot. You might go at great lengths to buy your dog a very fancy, expensive bed so that he can be comfortable. You might spend time with your dog and treat your dog like it's a member of the family. You might let your dog even sleep in your bed with you. You might even throw your dog a birthday party. Some of this might hit a little closer to home than others, right? But at some point, you're going to treat your dog like a pet. Right? Think about this. You're not going to spend the equivalent of a year's worth of wages on some expensive oil to anoint your dog to show it honor. Right? And where do I come up with a year's worth of wages? Well, well that was the value of the ointment that Mary used in John 12 to anoint the feet of Jesus. They think, well, that's different. But think of it this way. This is the kind of costly sacrificial blessing that God pours out as he cares for his sheep, right? Because it's, it's more than fine perfume, costly perfume. Jesus himself identified uh, as the good shepherd. And so more costly than fine perfumed oil, Jesus, in his greatest act as a good shepherd, literally laid down his life for his sheep. And think about this. Not only are the sheep stupid, defenseless, dirty, they're given access only by what? The grace and blessing of what the shepherd has done. And we are only given access to this table because what Christ has done, this very table of communion, right? Think about how we are only given access because of what Christ has done. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, we read that we, are all, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned, everyone to his own way. But then the second half of the verse says, and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He has taken on our sins that we might be fit to sit at the table. Think about this. Jesus walked through the ultimate valley of the shadow of death, the darkness of condemnation and hell, a fate that should have landed on us so that we might have a seat at the table. Our cup overflows in abundant blessing because he drank down the bitter cup of God's wrath, poured out, wrath that was intended for us, but that he took upon himself. David goes on to say in verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow or pursue me all the days of my life. The wording that David uses here then is typically used of an enemy that's pursuing or following. And think about David 
David knew what it was like to be pursued by someone who wanted to kill him. That was Saul. But here David says that it is goodness that pursues him. And that's the same word that God uses when he, said, when he declares his creation good. The word tov, right? It's, he says that goodness. And, and the mercy that is listed there, that mercy or loving kindness, the word is, is hesed. And it's often used, almost always used, to describe God's steadfast, loyal love for his covenant people. And so David is saying, surely God's goodness, right? His covenantal love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so for the Christian, every day of our lives, we are pursued by our loving shepherd, right? He uses his staff to draw us close to him and to keep us from going over the cliff. He uses his rod to beat off enemies. He's present with us as he leads us and guides us through dark valleys to nourish and grow us into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. He relentlessly pursues us with his goodness and love. He preserves our life so that we will be able to one day dwell with him forever in the house that Jesus has gone to prepare for us. Think about that. We'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus says, I will go to prepare a place for you. This is the house that Jesus prepares for his sheep. Our main takeaway from a psalm like this is simply worship. There are no commands for us to follow in Psalm 23. Only a shepherd to acknowledge, admire, adore, to trust in, to rest in and to follow wherever he leads. As we look at the the psalms coming up, we're going to be looking at psalms of lament, um, psalms that look at salvation and death, psalms where David cries out against his enemies, and yet underneath all of this is the shepherd who leads and guides him. He might cry out in, uh, in distress, but yet always... His steadfast shepherd is there. And so just as goodness and and a loving kindness pursues and transforms us through our ups and downs of life, our lives should leave in the wake, just as the psalm says, uh, a wake of mercy and loving kindness wherever wherever we go. Because of who the shepherd is, And what he has done, our lives should be marked as our shepherd. We should be known for peace instead of turmoil, for forgiveness instead of bitterness, for contentment instead of conflict, and for joy instead of frustration. Our loving shepherd cares for his sheep by bringing us peace through abundant provision, protective presence, and by his sacrificial blessing. That is the God that we serve. And that is the one that I so want our hearts to praise. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful gift of Psalm 23, that we might have this imagery given to us by David, a loving shepherd, one who knew about sheep, and yet even greater, one who knew you, who knows you. Father, I pray that you would use the imagery found in Psalm 23 to awaken in us the goodness of who you are, 
all that you have done for us. Father, remind us that even, even as sheep are ignorant of all that their shepherd does, that we truly are only know a glimpse of all that you have done for us. But I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes, that we might see more and more of who you are, that you would transform us so that we trust you more and more in each step of our lives, that we would be able to follow you as a loving, great shepherd. Father, remind us that our seat at the table is not one that we have earned, but it is one that has been purchased for us by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. So Father, humble us in worship and adoration. Help us to come near to you because you indeed are the good shepherd. We thank you, Father, uh, for bringing us to your table and for giving us life eternal in your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.